Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps coming back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to Katie Scoggins, who got into multiple car accidents that permanently altered the state of her brain. Also on the show today, I'm talking about a personal message I received this week reminding me that I'm not always the nicest person in the world, and sometimes we all need to apologize. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. I have to tell you, uh, this week I received an unexpected message from an old friend, and and it, it caught me off guard. It kind of surprised me, but when I got into it with her, when, when we got into conversation with each other, I was like, ah, oh, this is something I've been waiting to use for the show, I need to use for the show. And and just would really love to talk about with you this week. And the original idea for it came to me when I was talking to my roommate like months ago when I first started the podcast. And the idea for the top of the show was, I'm an asshole, you're an asshole, why we all need to make better apologies. But this one was a little bit more of apology in practice. So I just want to talk about apologies today and how important it is, even months, years, decades later, to say and get into the practice of saying, I'm sorry. So I received a message this week from somebody I used to be very close to, especially when I was in high school and college. She helped me wrestle a lot with my sexuality and coming out of the closet. And she was definitely a support to me as I was coming out of the sheltered household that I was living in as a kid. And she was somebody that that really supported me, encouraged me, and also exposed me to a lot of cool like pop culture things and the ways of the world and like vocabulary I'd never heard before. Not necessarily swear words, but but just a different way of being. And it was really, really cool going into high school and college, kind of having her at my side and having her as a close friend to talk to as everyone around me was also growing and changing so much. She sent me a message this week. We haven't talked in a while. She sent me a message this week that said something along the lines of, I wanted to say this to you before it got out of hand. I'm in a space right now where this keeps coming up for me and I need to say it. I just need to say it. And she sent a message that hearkened back to a conversation that we had when I was in my freshman or sophomore year in high school, and she was in a major, a severely depressive episode. And in our conversation, it was a text conversation, 
I basically ended the conversation and more or less ended the level of intimacy of our friendship by calling her a lost cause. Even saying it right now, I know the impact that these words have on somebody who's struggling, on somebody with depression, on somebody who is going through it. And in her note, she said that I both heard her and confirmed her worst fear about what everyone in her life probably thought about her. She said in her note that last summer she had a friend who decided they didn't want to be alive on the planet anymore. And she got to a space where she was so desperate she thought about reaching out to me because she saw the work that I do in grief work and with this podcast. And she hesitated because she remembered this one conversation that that more or less ended our friendship altogether. It didn't end in that moment, but it really tapered off after that. And she said, I stopped myself from reaching out to you because I remembered what you really thought of me. And she closed by saying, I thought it was about time I actually spoke up about this because when I'm at my worst moments, that's what I go back to. Just be careful what you say to people. And grief growers, this message it came out of nowhere. It just hit me right in the heart. And it brought me back to that day, to that text conversation, to those feelings of of frustration. And just that moment when our friendship was no longer our friendship anymore. We didn't talk a heck of a lot after that. And I remembered with this message this week that I've said a lot of shitty things in my life. I'm an asshole. I have been an asshole. I will continue to be an asshole. In middle and high school, I would call people anorexic because I thought it was a fun joke. I didn't understand. In a conversation, a very heated conversation with my ex-fiance, I angrily blurted out, well, would you marry you right now? Which, of course, is not kind. And I even wrote a song in high school about my controlling parents and actually compared them to Hitler. So, like, I, I'm an asshole. I have the capacity to be an asshole we're all assholes. I am a human and I have hurt people. I'm an asshole. You're an asshole. We all have this capacity to be assholes. In your grief, you will hurt people. In your ignorance, you will hurt people. In your anger, you will definitely hurt people. We just all have this capacity inside of us to be real jerks to other people. When I told my friend in this moment, almost seven or eight years ago, that she was a lost cause. My dad was going in for his second brain surgery. I was overloaded on college coursework. I knew nothing, 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 despite my psychology minor. I realistically knew nothing about how depression and anxiety worked. And I was angry that I kept having this conversation, that we kept having this conversation, just like sitting in the same energy of depression with this friend, with my friend. I was a fixer who had run out of tools. So I gave up, and I gave up in a really, really big way. I called her a lost cause, and that was the end. That was the end of the high intimacy slash sharing level of our relationship for the next seven years. Our words matter. Our actions matter. We are all going to fuck up and hurt people. So what do we do when we fucked up and hurt people? 
First, I'm going to start with what not to do, because I see this so often that I feel like we need a little bit of course correction before we go into how to make proper apologies. So first off, do not defend yourself. If somebody comes to you and they say that you hurt them or you believe that you hurt them, don't meet them. Don't come into this space with a list of why nots, with a wall of why nots and rationale and logic. That just severs the relationship. It decreases the trust. It breaks the connection even further. And it says, I can't meet you with a vulnerable heart because you're going to hit me with a wall. That's exactly what that says to the other person. Second thing not to do when you're trying to make an apology is don't tell them that you didn't hurt them or that you had no intention of hurting them. We've all got really, really great intentions most of the time. Unless we're acting out of anger, we've got great intentions because when we're grieving, we don't mean to hurt people. And when we're in ignorance, we absolutely don't mean to hurt people. But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, that really hurt, it's you don't get to say that you didn't. I know that Louis C.K. has been in the news for a lot of garbage things lately, and I have stopped listening to his comedy because of it. But he has one quote that's very, very popular and still resonates true with me. And it says, when a person tells you that you hurt them, you don't get to decide that you didn't. So it's up to the other people in our lives to, to say what hurts them, to speak up for what bruises their heart, for what fractures your friendships and your relationships. It's not up to you to decide whether or not that's valid. So don't invalidate their truth. Third thing not to do when you're making an apology is don't make this about you. Make an apology about the person that you're talking to, about a specific action or situation that you're apologizing for that's related to them, and and talk about your relationship as a whole, how it's been going, how you want it to go. Don't meet them. Again, it's kind of like meeting them with a wall, but don't meet them with everything that's going on in your life. Don't meet them with all of your struggles, all of your excuses, all of your reasons why you did what you did. Or even worse, don't meet them with how they should be apologizing to you for something entirely different. Keep everything related to the conversation at hand. So here's three things to do to make a proper apology. Because I'm an asshole. You're an asshole. We all have the capacity to be assholes. Number one, say you're sorry. Very similar to grief. Always open with, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. If it's been a while since you've talked, say, thank you for bringing this up. I'm so sorry I hurt you. If you're approaching them after a long time, say something like, I haven't been able to get this off my mind since it happened and our relationship feels different since it happened. I want to apologize. I'm sorry I hurt you. Secondly, tell the truth about what happened in the situation. Were you angry? Were you grieving? Were you stressed? Did you not understand something? Were you possibly intoxicated? Try not to make excuses here. This goes back to not making it about you. But know that sometimes context is helpful. In this case with my friend, I knew nothing about anxiety and depression. I knew nothing about how that worked and that I couldn't be a fixer to it. I wasn't aware of all these grief myths that I teach now, things that quote unquote cure us from the pain that we feel. I didn't know that all that was a lie. And so here I was trying to fix my friend. And when that didn't work, I just gave up on her. Like how shitty is that? So I I inserted that a little bit 
into my apology. I said, I'm so sorry. I was in a place where I didn't understand, but I recognize that it hurts you. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. And to know also that I've come a ways since then. I haven't come super far. It's only been seven years and I'm always learning and growing, but I've come far enough to know that what I did then, what I said then was wrong and unkind and hurtful. This is also a really helpful thing in telling the truth of the situation for the future to recognize red flags. What are you unaware of? Do you tend to get angry when you're drunk? What is it about your relationship that you don't understand? What are aspects of the the person that you're talking to that don't make sense to you? What stresses you out? Things like triggers. This helps both of you kind of keep your eyes out for red flags in the future. So when more hurtful phrases fly, you can say, oh, this is what happened last time. This must be an issue for us. Lastly, if and when, if or when, the person that you're talking to responds to the apology, thank them for being willing to talk to you about it. Say that you see and hear them in their emotions and validate their experience before you respond again. Things like, thank you for saying that. I'm really hearing you in this. I can see how this came off to you. This is more or less putting yourself in their shoes. If somebody was making an apology to you and you're acknowledging it, you're opening up that conversation, you're both in a really vulnerable spot. What would you want to hear from somebody else? Thank you for bringing this up. I see and hear you in this. I can recognize how it came off that way. Just these are yes statements, which is very, very helpful in an apology to continuing to open up conversation and to not move on, but to move forward with a continued relationship. I do have some caveats in this, as I do with practically everything on this show. Uh, The first one, of course, that's coming up is abuse or people that want to stay mad. If you have an abusive partner, if you're in an abusive or toxic relationship, or if there are people in your life that just really like holding on to things, that really like staying resentful, staying angry, having something to hold over your head, do the best you can to not let them hold your apology hostage or make you make amends. If it's an abusive relationship, please exit as safely as you possibly can. You might have to apologize away from them, like from a distance. This might mean apologizing online through a private message system, through text message, through email, through actually sending a letter through snail mail. You might not even be able to be face-to-face to them. Or if you can no longer apologize to them, things like a restraining order or estrangement, things like that, you might have to finagle a sort of ceremony where you apologize to their energy. You apologize to the spirit of them for, for wronging them or hurting them in some way. For people that stay mad or like to stay mad, I would say use a two-touch rule. Apologize to them once, get it out really well the first time, and if you get a hostile response or if you totally get ignored, wait a week and touch base again. Say, I sent this letter, have you read it? I'd really like to talk about this with you. Say, I've thought this over, it's been on my mind, it's really important to me to continue this conversation with you. And that's the best you can do. If they still come back mad, if they still come back hostile, if they shut you down and don't want to talk about it anymore, as one of my favorite and uh, most hilarious podcasters says, Jillian Michaels, she says, you've done your work. You've cleaned up your side of the street. You've done the absolute best that you can do. And if it's still lingering in your mind, you might have to come up with a ceremony, just like uh, with an abusive or a toxic relationship where you 
apologize to their spirit, apologize to their energy, apologize to the energy of the relationship that you two held together. And then last caveat, because I haven't mentioned this yet, you can still apologize to the deceased. You can. It looks a little bit different than apologizing to somebody in person because you don't get a verbal or a physical response. You don't get to really open up a conversation with them. But this is something that you can do in a structured way. This is something that the grief recovery method and being trained as a grief recovery specialist really helped me with is having a structure to not only say I'm sorry, but to also say I forgive you and to also say thank you. It has a very beautiful structured way to do that. So if you're still interested in working with the grief recovery method, which I recommend a lot on the show, I would highly recommend picking up the grief recovery method handbook, which is so, so helpful for that. Or you can reach out to me personally, super, super powerful and really helps you feel complete with the things you didn't get to say before the person died. Also, as you go on living in the world, something that we've touched on in previous podcasts is continuing to have relationships, continuing to have conversations with the people that we love who've died, and continuing to make apologies is is a valid type of conversation. So if you see, I don't know, a pair of pink socks at Target, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, mom, that I threw those pink socks away that you got me for Christmas that one year, because I didn't like the color pink. I'm sorry, I didn't acknowledge your gift. Like even something as small and fleeting as making that apology inside your head can be like, oh, I'm thinking of that. It's coming up for me now. So I'll make that apology. But apologies don't have to be, especially with the deceased, this really built up ceremonial thing. If you don't want them to, they can become a part of that everyday conversation, which is really cool. Apologies are hard, guys. Apologies are hard, grief growers, because we want to be right. We want to be superior to the people around us or have the upper hand in a relationship. We want to feel like we're in control. And apologies are also hard because we don't want to see ourselves as people who are capable of hurting other people. We don't want to see ourselves as assholes. How is that fun? The fact that I've said I'm an asshole so many times today is actually kind of like screwing with me. It's a little weird. I don't, I don't cast myself in this lens or this light very often, but we do hurt people and we will hurt people. We have been assholes in the past and we will be assholes in the future. So apologies are necessary to move through the world, to continue to live in and construct relationships with other people and with ourselves, to lighten our burdens and to take responsibility for the ways that we interact in relationships with other people. So who do you need to apologize to? When has an apology gone really, really well for you? When has an apology gone off the rails? I would absolutely love if you joined me this coming Monday, March 5th, for Facebook Live at 1 o'clock Central Time. And all you have to do is like my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. You can join me and all the other uh, assholes there. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Next up, we'll talk to Katie Scoggins, whose concussions from car accidents asked her to feel all of her shit and live as a less in-control human in the world. Katie Scoggins is a teacher of holistic wellness who loves spontaneous travel and the outdoors. She recently found herself a much-needed nest in a small home by the beach just north of San Diego. She spends her days teaching yoga and meditation, guiding introspective writing classes, and studying spiritual activism. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back today. I'm so excited to have a referral from our very own Morgan Brown, who was in 
an earlier episode of season two on the show, and she sent you our way. So I would absolutely love if you would start us off by telling us your lost story. Thanks, Shelby. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm glad that um, Morgan connected us. So my story is in the summer of 2016, I was hit by a truck in my van twice. Um, The first one was in May and the second one was in September. And in both of them, I got concussions. And the first one, I got whiplash. And I kind of denied that I had a concussion and was about to leave for a van trip. And I went to go work um, some events and just continued with my van trip. And I came home a few months later to attend a wedding and was hit head on this time, um, getting another concussion and like going into complete shock and just like barreling down into this dark tunnel of like, okay, now you have to face these brain injuries that you've had. And I still had a few months of denial after the accidents, but it was one of those things where the symptoms and the whole thing just kept building up and up and up. Like there's only so long that I can run from these things that are happening to me. So in March of 2016, I went to the hospital for all my brain things. I had a freak out. I had all these symptoms piled up at once. For the first time, really, I was really, really feeling them. And that's when I acknowledged the concussions for real and kind of went into a depression. I had anxiety attacks. I was sensitive to light. Um, I realized I had PTSD from the second accident, which was kind of a near-death accident after I took some time to look at it. So March was when I started really getting serious about my healing. That sounds so traumatic. I mean, I know you already threw the PTSD letters in there, but to have all of this happen in such a short span of time, did you ever just have a moment where you looked around and you're like, is this my life? Like, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly the first words that happened in my mind after my second accident. I'm like, this is not actually happening. This is, this is just a joke, right? (laughs) Um, It's interesting because that's like one of the side effects of a concussion or a brain injury is to like not see clearly and not understand and stuff. So there's this moment of like the clear me is like, this isn't actually happening. And then the concussed me is like trying to figure out like what's going on at the same time. Oh my gosh, that is so wild. And I'm kind of curious about the other people that were in your life. You live in your van, correct? I, I did in 2016. I'm I'm now living in an apartment. That's so cool. I know like nomadic lifestyle is something that a lot of people uh, dream about or like fantasize about or like, oh, I'll take a year off and, and do this. But I'm curious about the other people maybe in, in the van community or even in your family or, or friend group, like were they concerned with you? Did they not want you to continue a trip or drive anymore? Just kind of the response to all of this happening so close together. Yeah. So um, after my first accident, I went to work for the summer camp for adults called Camp Grounded, where I have like a few of my, like my van sisters, Morgan's one of them. And I have another one named Emily. And we talked about it a little bit, but I think since, at least after the first one, since I wasn't taking it so seriously, they were like, oh, she seems okay. Everything's okay. And it was a little more lighthearted right after that concussion. I left four days after that accident to go work for this camp. And then right after that, I traveled for um, was that three months straight across the country with another friend? 
it's funny looking back at my experience with her, this poor girl, I retrospectively noticed like my temper being different, totally not me and just like my need to sleep all of a sudden and stuff. And she was so she was really compassionate. I don't know if she understood what was going on with me, but she was just so easy to travel with in my um like this, ignoring the healing that my brain was trying to do. But uh, after the second accident, I connected with like some of my van friends and um, people who just know me as a traveler and stuff. They were like, hey, like you keep bringing this subject up of like feeling out of control or feeling anxious and stuff. And this isn't you. Like you had two brain injuries within four months. Like you need to, maybe you need to stop and take a moment and heal your brain a little bit. I needed a reality check from those friends and they know me and they know me as this uh, adventure buddy. And they saw, they saw the changes before I did, I guess. And I needed that little call to reality. So were they the people that actually woke you up to, to doing something or going inward with it? Or did something else happen that was like, oh shit. Like I got it. Yeah, actually, it's funny that (laughs) we just keep talking about Morgan in this episode and she was just on your podcast, but Morgan was the voice of reason that brought me to it. Uh, Mm. We were video chatting. We have used this thing called the Marco Polo and it records like a couple of minutes of you and you send it to them and then they record a couple of minutes back. And I left her this long message of like ranting, like, hey, I know this is going to sound crazy and weird, but will you just listen to me rant? I just like need someone to hear these words. And I left her this long message talking about being so confused and lost. And it's weird because that's not like me and like feeling out of control and like I can't be present, which was like hearing myself say those words was weird because I practice being present so much. It's one of the reasons why I travel and it's one of the reasons why I do the work that I do. Um, and she was like, Hey, Scoogs, that's the name that she calls me. Like, you remember? Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's my, my camp nickname from our work together. Um, she's like, you hit your brain two times and it's been like, she had a, a double brain injury or something in high school. And she, that's years and years ago, but she remembered like having to be turned off, like no TV, no reading, no talking to multiple people at the same time and she's like maybe you just need to rest because I was working on a project and stuff and I was wanting to travel every single month I was traveling at least one or multiple trips and she's just like you have to stop and I thought about it I'm like okay I'll take a week (laughs) a week a week (laughs) break from my work and just looking back at that that's ridiculous because I basically just took a year we're both laughing because it sounds like enough in the moment But then it's like, no, that's definitely not enough. <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny. Silly me. So I took a week off. I uh, was house sitting for my friend, watching her dogs and actually working at her job, which I used to work at too. And what got me to go to the hospital to get my first moment of help was these fluorescent lights. I went crazy every day after work and I noticed once I went to the hospital, the fluorescent lights were triggering me to have these, like, I got tested for um, seizures because they thought I was having silent seizures from them. So being in an office with fluorescent lights and hearing Morgan's voice tell me, like, you need to rest your brain, 
made me think maybe I should go to the hospital. And I had seen a doctor for like the whiplash and like we kind of touched on the concussion a little bit. But since I just ignored the concussion, I never truly was able to heal from it. My neck and back still hurt from the whiplash, but that was just something that I'm just dealing with and slowly moving through that pain and stuff. But um, yeah, Morgan's voice was the voice that got me to go to the hospital in March and like start this process of seeing neurologists, seeing uh, massage therapists and all these doctors trying to figure out what we can do with these symptoms. And in the long run, it was just like I got basically no help from the medical community, unfortunately, um, just because it's concussions are a mysterious thing and it's hard to find someone who, who gets that, that state of mind, I guess. Um, it's almost, I almost feel like it has to be a doctor who has gone through a brain injury to really get it. Cause it's such a, it's a thing that you can't explain to someone. I'm picking up on a phrase you just said, which is a different state of mind. And I'm kind of curious what, what did this period of time look like in your life where you literally had to shift from this was what was before to a different state of mind to concussion mm-hmm. mind to healing mind to acknowledging mm-hmm. mind what did that feel like for you the beginning i was so resistant like i just looking back this was me a year ago a year ago is when i went to the hospital for the first time and i just can't even believe how resistant i was to it like it kind of reminds me of how I reacted right after the accidents. Like I'm was in an accident. The fir- I was the most injured in both accidents. And the first thing I did was like, get out of the car, make sure everyone's okay, get safely off the road. Like I handled and took charge and took lead of the situation. And so that's kind of how I look at how I handled my brain injury. Like just handle it, take control. It's okay. Just kind of making it happen. And that is not how <laughs> the healing the brain works. You can't just make it happen. It's you have to let go. You have to stand back. And what I learned, what I feel like one of my things I moved through the most was this emotional detox, I guess. I learned to feel, I learned to just like, <laughs> if I feel like crying in one second, I'm going to start crying and let it go out. And I let myself feel the depressions. I let myself feel the anxiety. I let myself have panic attacks. And I wrote about it and I talked about it. And um, I just, I I never really identified as a person who would feel so much and like express it. Not that I didn't want to talk about it. I loved holding space for people who had all the feelings and stuff, but I wouldn't let myself go there. I guess this different uh, state of mind was just feeling more. Yeah. And it's so funny with grief because we all want to tell the story like five years from now after it's all Mm -hmm. happened, but living through it is like nothing any of us ever wants Uh to do. We're like, there's no space to handle it. There's no concrete answers. It's just like being thrust into this place of, well, I guess I'm surrendering now, but that doesn't feel really good Mm -hmm. either. I'm definitely picking up on that resistance to want to shift to a different state of mind because we don't in our like general day to day, that's not where we live or that's not where we're taught to live. Totally. And I had this thing, I guess another part of my resistance was like, almost if I accept that this is how it is, and I like dive into that barrel, I I felt like I was going to get stuck there because I was so attached to this like pre-concussed 
brain of mine. And I've, I'm sure I'm positive. I've had concussions before I've played sports my whole life. I have been rock climbing and done MMA and fallen off of bikes and stuff. I know I've hit my head before. And it's like, as, as you build up on the number of concussions you have, it affects your brain in such a different way. And that's why it's so mysterious. So there's, there's no going back to the brain pre-concussion. I'm like a year and a half, almost two years to since my first accident. And I still have like random bouts of sensitivity to light. I'm still um, wake up depressed and just anxious for no reason. And I find myself missing that old version of myself. And it wasn't honestly until the past few months where I was like, this is okay. I have the tools to handle it. I'm just here. It's fine to be in a funk for today. Before in my healing, I was just yearning to go to that pre-concussed state, like have my old brain back, my 2015 brain back, you know? Absolutely. And that makes so much sense to me. And I have a question that's coming up now that's not going to be well, well <laughs> phrased, but I think you might be able to get at what I'm getting at. And the question is, how are you learning to live with yourself? Like as this new person? I guess I've I've had this question asked before. Um, I met uh, I met my current boyfriend the month that I went to the hospital to like handle my brain and stuff and understand what all these symptoms were. And our relationship is basically the foundation of our relationship is my my brain issues, and so. <laughs> Romantic. <laughs> Everyone's favorite love story. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I think the reason why our relationship got so, like we went so deep so fast because I was in this completely authentic, vulnerable state and like, hey, like hanging out with you is fun and stuff. Like I would go rock climbing when it was quiet and he was working at the rock climbing gym at the time and he listened to my story and he was one of the first people who just sat and listened. Like people got really uncomfortable when I was talking about my symptoms and stuff. And I would get in these rants, like catching up with a friend or something I haven't seen in a while. And I'd look into their eyes and I'd be like, oh, I think I just handed them too much information. But Victor, my boyfriend, he he held it really, really well. And I am, I was back home kind of alone not that I'm alone at home like I have I grew up in this area but so many of my closest friends are like scattered across the country or traveling and stuff so I felt alone because I wasn't traveling and I felt alone because they my friends who like knew this stuff were far away and he just totally he held space so well for me and all my panic attacks all my like in the middle of a sentence, I'd be like, I have no idea what I'm saying. Or he, I would get mad at myself for forgetting words or losing track of time or not remembering a person. And he, he 
just did not react and was just so present with it. Um, one of my rituals, basically, when I was in the the depth of healing my brain, I'd be visiting him at the gym or I went to yoga at the gym or something, and I'd be just suddenly like freak out. I'm like, I'm going to go to my van. I have I drive my van around every day and I have a bed in the back. And so I would go to my bed in my van, put a pillow over my face or an eye rest over my face, and either sleep because I just couldn't handle the noise. I couldn't handle the light and stimulation or I would cry these like deep belly cries and he would come after work and find me crying and just just hold me there and just tell me like it's okay like I know this is hard I know you're feeling it it's okay to cry it's okay to feel all these things and he would just whisper in my ear all these things and I've never had that that's solid of a grounding before because in my mind I'm like telling myself okay stop crying wrap it up and um, I kind of play like the tough guy a little bit on myself. And he's, he was just so sensitive to that. I think I'm forgetting what uh, your question was, but he like seeing him as a mirror was something that really allowed me to go deep and actually feel all these things and move through them and not ignore them. And I just have so many memories of me laying in my van and him coming in there just to lay next to me while I like desperately look out my window crying for a reason that I might have not known about. I love that for you. And that's such a, that's such a beautiful picture of what more of us need. Mm -hmm. I think in our grief is just even to have everything that we're feeling and going through, even if other people don't understand it, to have it acknowledged and to have that space and even our bodies held uh, by other people is really powerful. Um, I'm interested now to know how all of this affected your work, because I know doing yoga, you sound like a very active woman, meditation, doing writing, uh, things like that. How, how did this entire story shift the way you worked, the way you saw clients, the way you saw yourself as mm-hmm. a business owner? I I had to stop for a while. Before, when, during my first accident, I was on a sabbatical from work. So I wasn't working. I was just doing events and projects that I loved. So I had no timeline, no rules. I was just doing it. And um, after my second accident, I I tried really hard to like start a new project and like dive deep into a new thing and it, it wasn't happening. And it was one of the things I was resistant to and angry about. So in March, after I went to the hospital, I needed, I don't know, I needed a little bit of routine and I didn't acknowledge that. But looking back, I know I needed a little bit of routine for my mind. I took an old job that I had as, as a massage therapist back. And so it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. It wasn't like the traveling, the events, teaching workshops. I really missed teaching and I would teach a little bit here or there, but I knew I, I wasn't reliable to show up and hold space and host for a couple dozen people or so. So I took an old job back and uh, after a couple months of being there, I realized that the work as um, a massage therapist was really healing from my nervous system. Like there's a little bit of interaction before and after, but it's it's mostly quiet and it's mostly just this like intimate thing I'm working on their body. This was another thing that helped me like be really okay with, okay, you can exist as a human and have these brain traumas. So um, it wasn't until a few months ago maybe November, I started back up on my projects and 
I, I learned how to balance it a little more. I was only working part-time, like three days a week as a massage therapist. And I would just like drop in a little bit of these new projects that I'm working on every week. And now I'm working on my projects like three or four days a week and working as a massage therapist three days a week. So it's it had to stop for a while. And then I had to um, compromise and go back to something else that I, not that I didn't want to do, but I, I just love teaching and being in community so much more than my uh, massage practice. And so now I've, as I've gotten better, I, I just slowly started melding the two together and I'm hoping to leave my massage job soon to just go back to doing my, my work online and my work with workshops and teaching yoga and meditation again. I love your outlining of this whole process because it's something that I found to be very, very true in my own story as well. Uh, after my mom died, I worked as hard as I possibly could and thought I could do it all and thought I could handle it all. And then after I moved to Chicago, I got really, really sick and everything had to come to a screeching halt. Like with the exception of the day job, I had to drop the other two jobs. I had to drop the online business. I had to drop hobbies and choirs and, you know, bike ride, like all these other things that mm-hmm. I did on the side. And and there's this fear when that happens, just like there's a fear of actually acknowledging the fact that you're wounded. But like if if I acknowledge that this is my life now, it may never end. And there's this fear of this will be permanent. I will never work again or I will never be in the same capacity that I was again. And I love hearing this kind of, this start to finish, but you're still kind of, I mean, we're always continuing to round out a little bit more. We're still continuing to, for lack of a better term, like climb the stairs. Yeah, You're always evolving into new positions and new you know, goals with your work and things like that. And there is something to be said about coming back into work again, post-loss that can make us feel like capable people to be able to create again and output and uh, contribute. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So I just absolutely love that picture for you. And and I don't acknowledge that a lot on the podcast. I tell people a lot of the times you're working too hard, you need a break, which I think mm-hmm. is true for about 90% of people. But there's also this like 10% of people who are afraid to go back into it because they won't be the same person that they were before. And I'm like, it's okay. You can go back in. There's this, mm-hmm. you know, there's a shift in capability, but you are always capable of something yeah. in the world. I love that for you. Um, there's something that I picked up on a couple questions back that I kind of want to circle back to. Mm-hmm. And it's it's these moments that you described where you would be in the gym or you'd be out somewhere and like lights would be too bright or noise would be too much. And there was just this overwhelming extra sensitivity sensation. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be coming up a lot more in our culture in general, this conversation around people that are extra sensitive, whether it's to sensations or social interactions or like material that could possibly be triggering. And I'm wondering if you've ever like lumped yourself in with this category of like, quote unquote, special snowflakes or people who need this extra attention and or kind of how you feel about the extra sensitive in our world. Because I think we all have the capacity in some form or another to be more sensitive than we are. And a lot of people just brush it off and ignore it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's like this negative dialogue of, oh, you're too sensitive and you can't handle blah. I'm just really curious to dive into that whole conversation and your perspective on it. There's a lot of directions we could go here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never 
identified with being extra sensitive until recently. Like that's part of my resistance is like allowing myself to be sensitive. And uh, one of the biggest lessons from my brain injury was giving people permission and like giving them this, I don't know, this bubble, like feel all your things. It's okay to feel these things. And now that I've felt so crazy and out of control and just in front of so many people, I I feel, I don't know, I feel like I, I really, really want to just sit there for people and just let them freak out right in front of me and not let them project onto me and do that, but just hold space, I guess, for them to feel the things, talk it out and just like, I don't know, I've, I've had times with my moms where she, she went through a hard time and she talked about how she's feeling crazy and stuff. And I, I just have these moments of realizing like, I'm, I'm so comfortable sitting in this space for her because she just needs to feel all these things. And I have moments flashing to where I'm freaking out in my van. And Victor did that for me was, um, I'm being, I'm acting insane. Like I'm, I just went from being totally calm and control in public and I step into my van and I freak out. Like that's, that's a very heavy thing for an unprepared person to watch. And he was able to do it for me. And that just gave me, this calling to like want to be there for people to uh, feel sensitive because it's, I just think it's so important to feel, feel our shit is what I say. Um, Yeah. It's, it's where we get so busy in day-to-day life, like outside of, outside of grief and outside of my concussion and outside of all the things like that. But, like we, we just go through our day so quickly and all these things are building up inside of us. And if we just have our schedule so full of like, got to go to work and do the thing and do the dinner and see the people. And we're just kind of almost like putting on this show for the world sometimes. Um, and we run out of time to like feel what's going on in ourselves. And that's one of the things that I love about teaching a mindfulness practice, my meditation and the yoga and writing and just spirituality in in general, it kind of forces you to slow down and look at that and then slow down again and look at that. And why aren't you wanting to look at that and feel that and give permission, uh, give people permission to write about it and get clear about it and, I feel like I could rant on and on about this because that's that's kind of like my passion now is is allowing people to feel all the things and then get clear about what they're feeling and then layer that back and like dive into it deeper and deeper and deeper within reason, like not trying to overwhelm people. It's um, on the other hand of that, like you also have permission to stop feeling all the things like I remember one time I was freaking out and Victor was like trying to ask me questions about it. He was trying to learn about me and stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I am so tired of feeling all the things and crying and freaking out. Like I want to ignore it today. I want to, I want to not feel today. And so, yeah, when you, when you learn to um, kind of dive into your feelings a little bit more, you can kind of, you can kind of see like maybe I do want to feel, maybe I do want to explore all this stuff. And also I'm so tired. I can, I can stop right now and like give yourself permission to both sides of that. It's permission to, to feel and to really dive in and to not feel at all, but to, it's almost permission to take the power back. Yeah, exactly. If you can pinpoint some things for us, what exactly in all of this do you feel like you've lost? In terms of what did you grieve? 
And then maybe on the opposite side of the coin or in tandem, hand in hand, what do you feel like you gained? I feel like I lost what I already spoke about is this like this old vision of myself, like being like in control and able to handle and like kind of that lion headed attitude that I had. Um, and like some things that I don't think about often are just like, uh, I have to double, double check if I'm ready to go to a concert. I love live music and I, I bought a concert ticket a couple months ago and I was there and I was like, whoa, this is so overstimulating. And I had to decide if it was good for me to stay or not. So little things like that, like I have to be picky about my diet because if my gut is not healthy, then my brain freaks out and have to double check if I'm going to a space of full of people that are going to make my brain feel good or not good. And um, I guess I've lost freedom to just be careless, which isn't an actual loss. Like that's good for me in the long run is to uh, be more mindful of what I'm doing with my body and my mind. So I guess that turns into what I've gained is this, like I was just talking about this permission to really feel. And I, how do I say this? I, I feel, I've been noticing that I feel really empowered as the person that I am. Like I, I feel, I feel like I have to give nobody an apology for existing how I am, like kindly, but just, yeah, like I just give myself to um, exist exactly, exactly how I am. I was telling someone the other day how I gained so much more compassion for people. Like, I feel like essentially I feel like I'm, I'm seemingly the same person I was before my accidents, but like I was saying, withholding space for people Um, just this deep desire to do that and this like this powerful drive to do my work like I feel like I'm more on mission to do good and like serve others and less just like floating around a little bit I feel more on mission and called to serve a little bit more because of all the things people did for me during this I realize more people need that when than we realize Yes, you are absolutely 1000% right that we all need more space than we're giving ourselves. I'm thinking now to kind of where you are today, just like sitting across the mic Mm -hmm. today. What is the biggest thing or collection of things that is helping you come back? I think that the seed of of what held me together through all this on top of all the things I've talked about was my spiritual practice. I've studied holistic wellness and spirituality for several years. And this was the first time that I really had to, I was forced to like be in it and be held accountable for actually doing the work on a daily basis. Um, Like what my, what my day-to-day looked like when I was suffering and crying and stuff was like waking up, letting myself cry or go meditate or go journal. And since I had this long process of like every day, like desperately clinging to something to like get out of, move through feeling in the funk, um, that's like, it's it's carried over into now where I, I feel like I'm functioning fairly normally in society again. Um, 
I, I go to work and when I feel tired, I, it's almost like a, a, a habit that I learned. Like I go to meditate or I go to take a salt bath or I look at my diet for the week and realize that, oh, I wasn't eating well. Like it's like that habit that I built during the hardest part of it is still here. And when I don't, when I notice my brain and my body doesn't feel very well, it's like I instantly go back to that. I um, am more aware of my self-care. Yeah, totally. And if you encountered a person, or I guess as you're encountering people in your day-to-day life that are on that edge of like resistance to acknowledging this is what happened, I got to dive into this, something's got to change, what would be your message to them? I mean, the guidance that I give people are are these tools of like mindful breathing, meditation, and writing. My I find the thing that's easiest to relate to all people is writing because everyone can write. And I've been encouraging people to like when they, they want to come rant to me, say they feel comfortable to rant to me or something, go to your journal or go to a piece of paper and just write it out and, and see what's going on there. Because we have so much going on in our minds. Sometimes it's hard to realize how much is going on in our minds when you don't like take take a piece of paper and a pen and like pull it out of your brain and put it onto a piece of paper so you can see it in another way with your eyes and your hand is filtering like what comes out of your mind and onto the paper. So I'm feeling like overwhelmed and just in this place of not knowing what to do anymore. I've, I think every single conversation that I've had recently, the first thing that I think of is like, just write about it. Just, just get it out and see what it is. And then I have, questions and a conversation to have about that. But the first step is really just honestly writing. I love writing and I actually sometimes refer to it as mind dumping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I call it too, brain dumping. <laughs> exactly. Brain dumping, mind dumping, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I used to call everything that would exist in your head before you wrote it down as mind circling. Mm-hmm. And then the act of writing is mind dumping. So I absolutely love that because it's so true for me. I don't think I'm going through a lot. And then I start writing like in the morning. And if I get to more than if I write more than one page in a journal, if it goes to three, four, five, six, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All of a sudden you get this recognition of like, I've been a lot more stressed out than I've given myself yeah. credit for. Or like I'm rolling a lot more around in my head than I'm giving myself credit for. And even just that writing is an active space, A, because it takes time to to write through and sift through everything that's in your head. But when you see it written down, it actually takes up physical space out in the world. And you're like, wow, okay, there's some magnitude that you can mm-hmm. can measure there. Oh, So I absolutely love the practice of writing for this. That is so cool. Yeah, it's been such a good tool for me. It's like a, a smack in the face most of the time, but <laughs> in the long run, it's been very helpful. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's really, well, you need that sometimes. Sometimes you need to get smacked in the face and other times you're like, okay, I just need a tool that's going to be helpful for us. Yeah. Um, Give us some links, some resources to either the things that you're working on now or where people can find you and your work if they're interested in getting in touch. Actually, my project right now has to do with writing. Um, My website is katiescoggins.com. And um, I just released this free mini course called Mindful Journaling. 
I have like a little PDF workbook you can read the prompts and write through or some audios where I they're like in, it's introspective journaling. So we go through um, just learning how to brain dump is what I call it in the in the mini course, um, learning how to brain dump and like kind of get into that space of writing from your heart or your soul and then taking that and I ask questions like what are your actual desires? What do you actually want? What are the fears and the blocks that are stopping you from uh, doing these things? And we just kind of ask more questions about um, just kind of layering it back like an onion, digging deeper with each question. And there's some tools in there too. When you're sitting in that space, like, oh, I don't know what to do, or I don't know what's going on, or just feeling overwhelmed, there's there's tools that you can just jump right into and um, just journal with. So you can do it by yourself with the PDF, or there's um, a little guided portion of it where I imagine it being like a workshop, like I ask a question and we all write together. And I'm looking to make a community about it because I, I, I feel like we need to have conversation about this. Like it's one thing to take that step into journaling and take that step into um, mindfully journaling and like digging deep in there, but then having someone witness you and, and how you want to share your journaling and just hearing someone else wrote this thing like, Oh yeah, I thought I was the only one. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now um, at katiescoggins.com. There's a little tab called mini course and um, you can get it right there for free. Oh, love it. And yes, I, I'm echoing that community in anything, but especially through writing through the hard stuff, living through the hard stuff it is very, very powerful to be in community with all that. But thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and sharing your story with us. I'm glad to hear that you're getting into a space of recalibrating and just this continued like acknowledgement of, of your humanness. I love it. It's like a practice in being. Mm-hmm. It it really is. Uh, the concussions really leveled up my my practice on being. <laughs> you could say. <laughs> so that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so so much to Miss Katie Scoggins who joined me to talk about resistance to the truth of our lives, giving up control, and feeling through all of our shit. Katie came back by writing and journaling, allowing herself to feel and be held by others, and acknowledging things would never be the same again after her loss. You can find a link to Katie's work where you can find her mindful journaling mini course in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, March 5th at one o'clock central time, where we'll talk about how we're all assholes sometimes and how to craft and not to craft a proper apology. Thank you to all of you out there who are supporting the show on Patreon. I am so excited to get rewards in the mail tomorrow, the first of the month, as I do every month. As a reminder, Patreon is a set it and forget it way to support the show each month and to get fun rewards like stickers and off-air time with me for doing it. You can find a link to my Patreon page in the show notes if you'd like to support the show. If you liked what you heard this week on the podcast, support the show as well by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always to Mr. Addie Goldstein who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. 
If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I enjoyed the amount of swearing that we did. (laughs) I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.